Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Miller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Anne-Louise Lockhart. She is a pediatric psychologist who is board certified in clinical child and adolescent psychology. And she is the founder, president, and owner of A New Day Pediatric Psychology, PLLC. Dr. Lockhart, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for asking me, Kayla. Absolutely. So we're going to just dive straight in. Um, Our first question, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and why you chose to go into psychology? Yeah, certainly. Um, So I'm originally from St. Croix in the United States Virgin Islands. I was born and raised there. And I, my original goal actually was to go into fashion merchandising and business. So um, my mom and her sister owned a children's clothing store for about 30 years. And I did a lot. That's where I got my first and actually only job throughout um, my childhood and teenage years. And uh, I worked up the ranks. <laughs> I would do a lot of cool stuff. That, but what I really loved doing was I would do um, designing uh, of the store, so the, the displays. And so I would do like the merchandising for that and help them on the buying trips. It was just awesome. So that's what I was going to do is like take over the family store. Um, and so once I got to college, I uh, realized that I didn't like it at all. I didn't want to do the business aspects of things or anything. And um, it wasn't enjoyable like I thought it was. And um, so, yeah, I changed my major a bunch of times in college and I I probably changed it about six times. And then I finally ended up with psychology only because my mom told me I had to graduate in four years. So being a psychologist was not part of my plan. Um, And then I went on to get my master's in student personnel administration from Indiana University. And I worked in higher ed for six years. So I did a lot of stuff with residence life, Greek life, upward bound, rape education, all kinds of stuff. Um, did admissions recruiting in Ohio, um, sorry, residence life in Ohio. And then I moved to California where I did recruiting. So I, would, I, design, I worked at a design school and I did recruiting of high school students all over Southern California. And uh, then I was a peer counselor at a church in Pasadena. And that's when I realized, um, oh, I should be doing counseling. Should be doing therapy with people. So I met my husband in California. He encouraged me to get my doctorate. We moved to Arizona. And um, I started getting experience working with kids and teenagers in the areas of mental health with abuse, homelessness, um, kids who were at a last chance charter school, all kinds of kids and um, just fell in love with it. So, and then I moved to San Antonio where I did my psychology residency and fellowship with the military as a civilian and um, really fell in love with working with that population and then really got in-depth training um, with kids and service members. And, And then I started my private practice four years ago. And so then here I am today. Your path has been uh, very diverse, winding. Yes, yes. 
a lot of different uh, areas of expertise so that you bring to the table, which is yeah. awesome. Right, and that's why I think it gets so confusing when people are looking into um, practice and developing a niche. And I keep hearing, oh, you know, have a, a specific, very specific focus. And that was so hard for me because with the, especially with the military, I did, I worked with them for 10 years and I did so many different things and had such great training. I didn't want to niche down. And I'm like, no. So my husband would joke and he said, well, maybe your niche could be everything. And I'm like, that's not a niche. <laughs> He's like, well, you could just say you're good at a variety of things. I'm like, no, you have to say one thing. But I mean, it's kind of evolved into that is that I just I do like talking about a variety of things. And that's where I find my balance, because I find a lot of people burn out in the field because they only do one thing. And it's, it is for some people, but it's not for me. So part of our mission is to break the stigma that surrounds mental health. Um, and we know this is a big barrier for people seeking help and treatment. Um, one question that we ask a lot of our guests is, how do you find mental health? And then how do you have the conversation with people out there that say, just people just need to get over this, you know, buck up and go on sort of a thing. How do you address that, that conversation? That's a great question, Nancy. So I think mental health is applies to everybody, right? I mean, everybody has mental health <laughs> because we all have brains and we all have I mean, it, it's kind of obvious. I think people confuse that with mental illness and not everybody has a mental illness. So uh, mental health is important for everybody. And I especially see that it's a very important in terms of the integration of care. So one of the things that the military did really well in my training is doing a lot of interdisciplinary clinics. And so whether I was doing the headache clinic or the inflammatory bowel disorders clinic or the sickle cell clinic is that we always integrated the psychology or the mental health portion of it because our minds and our bodies are very much interconnected and one thing can exacerbate the other. So I tell people that mental health is extremely important because it impacts all aspects of our life, our diet, our, our, uh, our sleep, our weight, our, uh, our stress, everything that we go through. So I believe that's why that's so important. Um, I think that if people say, oh, well, you know, just buck up, get over it, you know, that's not how it was in back in my day, you just slap it out of them, whatever it is they say. Um, it's like, well, lots of things. One of the examples I use for, especially when I work with grandparents, um, is that, you know, well, there's a lot of things that used to work back in the day, you know, rotary phones worked when I was a kid. <laughs> Um, but I wouldn't be able to Instagram and Facebook and podcast with a rotary phone. I mean, but it does work and it, and I still could use it if I wanted to. Um, but we have to adapt to things and it doesn't mean that we give up some of the important foundational values, but we also have to consider that times have changed and that's okay. It's okay. So, um, I think when it comes to certain things like, um, mental illness, is that we also have to realize that not everybody is designed and equipped the same and that everybody has the same risk or protective factors because some people are better equipped to buck up and push through and other people, they started out um, not with those things that they needed. And I think we have to take all of that in consideration. We're not all the same. And even within the same household, we're not the same. Not the same. It's that it's that uh, buying into this is a this is about your brain. It's how your brain functions, and everyone's not the same. And so we need to deal with each individual as as that person and what's going to make them healthy. Exactly. Absolutely. And I love that that analogy that you used with the rotary phone. I've yeah. never heard yeah. that, and that is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and hopefully most people remember that. I mean, I know that Pottery Barn sells them as <laughs> <That's> decoration, <laughs> but I don't have one in my home anymore, but I sure remember yeah. using them. Yeah. 
or yeah. dial up or something like that. And some... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so um, moving on a little bit. So you have a lot of information on your website about the modalities of therapies that you utilize in your practice. And many of the people that we work with are very new to a lot of the terms people in the mental health field use. So could you just take a moment and explain to our listeners what you do and how you do it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so you're referring to like cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance right. and therapy, correct? Yep. Okay. So um, yeah, there are a lot of modalities. There's what they call in psychology are like different waves of therapy that we've seen over the century, basically. Um, so, you know, we started a lot with psychoanalysis with Freud, and then they moved a lot into behavior modification or behaviorism, um, and then cognitive behavioral therapy. And then the fourth wave is the acceptance and commitment therapy. And so we kind of have these four waves of therapy that people have kind of gone through based on what they call the zeitgeist or the um, how the society was, what they were ready to accept, right? So when people were going through like Darwinism or religious thinking or anything is that people had different views of different things. And a lot of therapies have come out of what the uh, general feel of the world or the region that you were in. So like in New York, you'll see a lot of providers offering a lot of old school psychoanalysis, for example, a lot of them still do that. Um, but then if you look uh, more on the West Coast, you'll see more of the cognitive behavioral or more of the acceptance and commitment type therapy. So it is very regional as well too. So it's very interesting because it's, although some people may see it as very old, there's also a, a regional or cultural differences as well too. So um, most of what you'll see with evidence-based treatments are what you'll look at, and that's what you really should look for is evidence-based treatments. So things that are based in research. Cognitive behavioral therapy, tends to be one of the most popular ones because it's based on looking at your thoughts, your behaviors and emotions, how they interact and how they uh, impact you. And that one is really helpful for things like anxiety, for OCD, um, for depression, um, for things like trichotillomania, like hair pulling. Um, so just all of those kinds of other types of uh, unknown diagnoses. And CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is used often for a lot of medical diagnoses as well, too. So a lot of the, what I specialize in is working with uh, children and teens with medical diagnoses. So like headaches, seizures, um, pain, those kinds of things. And CBT is known to help with those things because, again, you're tracking how you think and then changing your behaviors. Um, one of the more popular ones more recently is uh, a lot of... Um, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. And ACT is really important for things um, based on uh, what you can't change. So having a diagnosis of cancer, um, having a death, um, a lot of what's going on in terms of like racism and discrimination, things that you don't feel like you have a, a direct impact on, but you know that eventually it, something about it has to change, but you don't feel powerful enough to do something about it. And so some of that can be very impactful for that so that you say, okay, it is the way it is, but I'm going to commit to changing what I can in my corner of the world or in my corner of life or whatever it is. So there's so many different things that you want to look at based on what you're dealing with and what, what the end result is that you're seeking as well, too. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't realize it was regional like that. I didn't either. That's, that's really interesting. And it makes sense, though. So let's go back to, you work with a lot of um, children, um, and there's a lot of talk about uh, starting at the well checks. So when you're talking to parents of young children, 
um, and they're 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 uh, they're taking their child in for their well check. How do you get them to start that discussion with their pediatrician early? What are some things, some advice that you would give to parents? That's a really great question. I think that one of the important parts is to for parents to equip themselves and educate themselves about what is developmentally appropriate at each stage of development. Mm -hmm. And actually, the Center for Disease Control, um, a CDC, on their website, they have a really great step-by-step -step of different milestones from birth up until through the teenage years for cognitive, um, gross motor, um, fine motor, emotional, physical, all of those different things. And to have an awareness of what are the general periods of time when a child should be doing different things, crawling, walking, pulling up, pottying, all that kind of stuff. So I think that when a, parents are aware of what kids should be doing, then they should they could know what to ask, and what would be appropriate. And then also making sure that then you also follow up with the other things like social and emotional development as well too. So maybe they're walking and doing things okay, but then they're not really connecting or doing eye contact or playing um, in an appropriate way like they should. So I think equipping yourself educational wise, as well as asking specifically about those things of the pediatrician is really important. And making sure that you choose a pediatrician who understands that. And if you're concerned about your child's development, Maybe you need to even look at having a developmental pediatrician, which is different than a general pediatrician. Okay. So if you have a child who has delays or a chromosomal issue or diagnosis um, or um, autism diagnosis or something that you suspect and you don't feel like your needs are being met from a general pediatrician, then taking the initiative to look at a, a developmental pediatrician who's more specifically trained in those areas. Okay. And what kind of advice do you give to parents about starting the conversation? And what age do you think that they should start that conversation about brain health? Uh, from the beginning, <laughs> from the very beginning. There's lots of different studies and uh, organizations that are birthed to three because zero to three, the first three years of life is so important. Mm -hmm. uh, so I say from the very beginning that you notice that, you know, because a lot of times when I worked with the autism clinic with the military years ago, Many times is by the time parents came in with their child age two or three, when we did a full developmental screening and intake, we saw that the issues were very, started happening early on. But if you're a new parent, uh, first time parent, um, you don't know what's not normal. And then people are calling you neurotic. I mean, you know, and what's wrong with you and you're just being a picky mom and you're not, you know, I mean, so you get all those different things that come up. Um, so I think I said, that's why I feel like equipping yourself and asking from the very early on is really important because those things can be kept in check and you can do something about it through early intervention. Yep. You're talking our language, early intervention. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> early intervention is key. So when you're talking to parents, do you have recommended resources to help kids to work through their emotions and to develop that language so that they can have better resiliency as they grow into teenagers? Yeah, I really try to encourage parents based on what the concerns are. Is that you may want to look at um, kind of general developmental kind of health, but also looking at specific resources related to speech, occupational therapy, physical therapy. So those might be things that they may look at in their area is looking for people who offer speech, OT, and occupational therapy and, and physical therapy ser services. Um, or it could be also where they look at um, resources online that kind of educate 
with step-by-step -step stuff. And there's tons of stuff on Instagram and Facebook that you can just kind of do a search, a word search on different things that you're concerned about. And then getting involved in Facebook groups as well too, because those can be very encouraging and helpful to provide resources. Okay, all right. We were actually, um, one of the moms that we were talking to earlier today was talking about the Facebook groups and it, I'm, I'm not a mom yet, but um, <laughs> it seems like that's such a popular and easy way to get connected and just find people who are going through similar things or have experienced um, some of these situations. Yeah, it makes a big difference because then you realize, so because so often I think the biggest thing is people keep thinking they're the only ones experiencing it. It's like, no, that you are not. Like that is so far from the truth. And so then when you're part of a Facebook group, especially or a support group, you realize, oh, okay, my problem isn't that strange or unusual. There are other people. And in, in a, a world of billions of people, there's no way you could be the only one. But you know, when we're in the moment, we really do think that we are. And so I think it's in th that community and that having that try behind you helping you is really important absolutely so kind of going back to working through these conversations with children is there certain languaging that you would use to help children kind of understand mental health and brain health and wellness and all that kind of stuff at an early age so i think um depending on their age i try to keep it very basic and very practical but using a lot of concrete strategies so a lot of where I, what I go back to with a lot of little kids, especially is showing them, I have a cartoon drawing of uh, the brain. And actually I was, for a long time, I was joking about trying to find a garage sale where I could actually find a brain, like a plastic brain, <laughs> not a real one, of course, because <laughs> that'd be weird. But, um, but having like showing them the picture of a brain and really showing them all the different lobes and what each lobe is responsible for. And I find that is so empowering because many kids don't ever get that education and they don't really understand why they may have struggles with certain things or why maybe even a classmate might have a struggle with certain things. So I'll go through all of it, like why someone, you know, what part of the brain is responsible for speech and memory and attention and mood and personality. So they understand that all of it is brain-based and, but most of it is actually learned. And so we can wire our brain differently based on what we practice. So when I kind of give them that general um, view of what the brain does and what part of it is within our control, it can be very empowering for them. So when they're having issues with sitting still or issues with their mood or talking back to their parents or stuttering, they have an understanding of where it's occurring and that it's not a permanent character flaw. Um, so I think always using language that um, is very concrete and using visuals that are very concrete. And I think that makes a huge, huge difference for kids. So that way they can feel empowered with it. So whether it's their parent that's struggling with a mental illness or um, themselves or a friend or just kind of general knowledge about things, I find that that always making it very concrete is very helpful and very important. Absolutely. So for parents of teens, they, uh, they might not have the, the conversation with their kids when they were younger. And all of a sudden they're finding themselves in the situation where they need to start the conversation. What, do, what advice do you give them? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been having a lot of that, those questions lately about parents of teens. They're like, yeah, can you do more posts and information about teens? Because they are a very different breed. Um, and I think it goes down to the very basics. And, it, and this is based on what I've heard from teens directly when I meet with them. And it's funny because several months ago, my team and I at my practice, we decided to, you know, um, 
we have a team meeting every week and I said, okay, let's go task each other out with the, with, um, with the big task of saying, okay, what is it that teens need? What do parents of teens need to be more effective? And so we all went out and looked at blogs and looked at newsletters and research articles and books and all these different things. And, and then we came back and I'm just like, wow, it was all the same information. It, I kept thinking it was going to be some mind blowing evidence-based thing we've never heard of. No. And the thing that kept coming up over and over again, both from information from teens directly and from all the research and stuff we looked at, is that teens want to feel heard. They want to feel unconditionally loved and accepted, regardless of how they screw up. Yeah. They want to um, be with a parent who's vulnerable and transparent, and that they, the parent who shares their own hangups and mess-ups and struggles as well, too. Okay. It's a, I, I, I was just telling this story to someone else where we're in a lot of schools and we talk to a lot of teachers and administrators and what they say all the time is, I'm afraid to have this conversation. I'm afraid I'm going to do it wrong. When I say to them all the time, I'm like, are you human? Do you have a heart? Can you sit down with somebody? Can you look them in the eye and say, I'm concerned about you? What's going on? And then just shut up and listen to what they have to say. And then from there, you start to take action. You start to help them get to where they need to go. Yep. But it's that it's that being vulnerable and being in that space where you can you can listen to what they have to say and then you can decide what to do with that, I think is so important. Right. And then free from judgment and free from not jumping in and saying, well, what you should have done was yeah. because it's so tempting. But also I think a big key part of it is what I, I keep hearing from a lot of kids and teens is that they can't they don't feel like they can go to their parent for things because they feel like their parents already um has all the right information and, and they don't ever struggle with anything and that they've never struggled with anything. They, they just came out of the womb as an adult with making good decisions. And it's like your, your teen needs to know that sometimes you didn't make good decisions either. And I, I'll joke with my kids about that. They're not teens yet, but I'll joke with them about dumb stuff that I did and things that I thought and, um, you know, poor decisions that I may have made to an extent. Um, because I think they need to know too, that you are human and that you don't always get things right. Or, you know, and my son is like, you know, I want to see our family, but I'm uncomfortable seeing them right now, um, because of the, the virus. And I'm like, yeah, I feel uncomfortable too. And he goes, you do? I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. So th just things like small things like that. So that kids understand that we don't have it all figured out mm -hmm. and that we have feelings about things too. And I, I think it just comes down to just being human with your kid and accepting them where they're at. Doesn't mean that you accept everything they do, but you accept them for who they are. Mm -hmm. And that's the big distinction, I think. Right. And then when you're working with teens themselves, there are a lot of social challenges and there, there are a lot of, it's, there's a lot of pressure on them to perform today. What are some of the coping strategies that you talk to them about? Yeah, that's an important one because we have seen a significant increase in anxiety with teens, like out of control, more so than depression now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's because a lot of parents are placing way too much pressure on things that are not all that important. So yes, it is important for them to pay attention in school, do their homework, to focus and that kind of stuff. But who cares if they get a B or a C in something? Like, why does it matter so much for them to get such good grades? Mm -hmm. Or why is it so important for them to get good in an area that is such an area of weakness. And there's more and more research that talks over and over about that instead of spending so much time, effort and money on developing weaknesses, develop strengths mm -hmm. instead. Yeah. 
you know, and I think it's so hard for parents to let that go because they're like, oh, so if they're a screw up in chemistry, they should just stay a screw up. I'm like, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but if they're better in English and writing, why don't you develop that skill more mm -hmm. than, you know, taking away the reserves on that area? So I think it's about really focusing on the right thing and helping them not feel so pressured to perform that they're only accepted when they do well. Mm -hmm. And that is the thing I keep hearing over and over again is that whether it's in sports, because I work with a lot of athletes, like elite athletes, teenagers and college students. And that is the thing I keep hearing over and over again is that they always felt only accepted by their parent if they did well. Mm -hmm. And if they lost a match or they lost a tournament, then they were kind of like, like insulted or brought down on because of that. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to really switch our approach to that. It's like, why is that so important? Right. And why do we make it so important to them? Yeah, we just did a, a research study in Cincinnati and we asked the kids, where does the pressure come from? And it really comes from themselves, but it comes from a, the, the, the talk that they're hearing their entire life. And how do you change that mindset that, you, that they start to talk to themselves in a different way? And that's why that parent language is so important, right? Because we see all these quotes and all these memes about how the, the child's language, internal language, is, comes from the parents, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not getting that language from themselves. Right. They are. They think it's from themselves, but that language is really coming from parents. Right. And so, again, it's not about parent guilt or mom guilt, because I know we're famous for that. It's not about that. It's about knowing where maybe we did kind of veer off the path and just say, okay, it's never too late to start over. It's never late, too late to start and change the narrative mm -hmm. and just say, you know what? I know I've placed a lot of pressure on you to get all A's or to win every game, but you know what? It's not all that important. Mm -hmm. It's not all that important. In the general scheme of things, when you look back over time, it's not going to make any difference at all that you got to see in chemistry. Nope. And I joke with my teen uh, kids a lot um, that I see in, in my practice that I was a horrible student <laughs> in high school. I was a great student until seventh grade. I had a really bad experience with a math teacher who didn't know what she was doing, legitimately had to do summer school. And I hated school throughout all until my senior year. And I started buckling down my senior year only because my island got hit by a hurricane. We lost our home. We had no power or running water for eight months. I contracted dengue fever from infected mosquitoes. And that's when I decided, you know what? If I want to get the heck off of this island, I have to buckle down. Oh, wow. And that's the only reason that I did so well that year, because I was barely doing well enough to do well. And I got accepted into college under a conditional admittance acceptance because my GPA was so low and my SAT scores were so bad. So... I mean, and I'm a doctor today. Yeah. So I, I'm not a doctor because I was a stellar student. No, not at all. Mm -hmm. It was because I decided that, you know what, I finally need to focus on what I need to focus on. Mm -hmm. But the grades, the grades weren't the most important thing. Right. I think we focus so much on academic performance when really our child's mental and physical health is so much more important. Yeah, exactly. That's what we should be focusing yeah. on. I'm hoping that our current situation is going to accelerate some of these discussions, though. I think it has. Mm -hmm. I think it has. And I've seen so much on mental health mm -hmm. across all fields with yeah. sports, entertainment, people who never would have spoken up are speaking up. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. So I, I think that's one of the good things that are going to come out of this situation. Yeah, I agree. The yeah. One of the silver linings is going to be. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there was that um, college football coach who just, we just posted about it a couple of days ago that he retired after 30 years and came out, I guess, as being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And he felt he had to keep it a secret for so long because of the stigma and then starting to talk about it now. And 
normalizing the conversation, everything like that. It's awesome. And you don't see that in sports. So. And, and more and more professional sports teams are bringing on sports psychologists. I have a really good friend and colleague from grad school who's doing a lot of sports psychology stuff and they're hiring a lot of people to be in their organizations on the, on the national professional level. So I think that's amazing because it talk about the amount of pressure these guys have when they're going through this. So I think it's important to have it on all levels and, and normalize it, that it's okay to talk about it. Right. I love that. Yeah. All right. We do have one more question. So a lot of people ask us this question. When do I know that my teenager has something more going on than the typical teenage angst that, you know, you always hear about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's the, the very fine line between regular kind of normal issues that are going on and things that are causing clinically significant impairment and dysfunction. So that's all to say that, for example, if a, a teen is saying that they're feeling fearful of things, but the fear, which is a normal emotion, is expectable and a normal reaction given the situation, um, then you know you don't need therapy for that. You don't need further intervention for that. It's a normal reaction. You should be scared if a scary thing happens. If you see someone and you think someone's following you or someone's looking through your window or there's a spider in your bed, you should be afraid. <laughs> yeah. but, but I think if you're having significant amounts of anxiety, for example, over something where you're what they call ruminating and chewing over it and really all the what if scenarios and now you can't go out and you don't want to go to sleep at night and you can't you're having a hard time eating and interacting with your peers it's significantly impacting all areas or multiple areas of functioning that's when you need to look at further help for your kid or if someone is sad i had a teen ask me once well when should i be sad and i'm like when sad things happen <laughs> <laughs> right but but you shouldn't be depressed all the time or most of the time. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling sad and depressed during a time when you should be happy, so you're with a bunch of your friends, you're doing something you enjoy, hanging out of the movies, whatever it is, and you should be happy and you feel yourself heavy and weighted down and alone, then that's a problem if you feel that like that the majority of the time. And so I think that's where, that's why that education of the self as the parent and educating your teen about what is a normal expected reaction and then what is something that falls beyond that realm. I think that's where that's going to be important because it, it looks very similar, you know, same thing with grief. If someone you know and love passes away or you lose something that's important to you, like a friend moving away, you should be sad. You should grieve that. That's normal. But if after, you know, several months and you're going through it and you're still not moving on with your life, because it's again, it's like, well, what is normal time frame? How long should I be sad for? How long should I be anxious? Well, that's hard to say, but if it's something that, again, is affecting multiple areas of your life, that's when you're like, you know what, your child or your teen might need further professional help with this. And if you're asking yourself if they need help, then they probably need help. Yeah, that's a, that's a good marker. Right. And I, and I, I really talked to a lot of parents and teens about the whole, um, you know, it'd be like, say you go to the gym or go to get a personal trainer and then, you know, you get fit, you get healthy, you get strong. And then you're done with that, or you're already on the right track. It doesn't mean you just totally stop. You want to still do the skills anyway. And so it's the same thing with mental health is that a lot of things is once people meet the treatment goals and they're no longer fearful or sad, it's kind of the relapse prevention and education. You help them to understand their uh, triggers mm. and those things that really grind them, those things that really kind of overwhelm them. And then you just do those things. 
you know? And so maybe it's going out with a friend, maybe it's going for a walk, maybe it's having a good meal, watching a good movie. Like those are all skills that you should have anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to talk about or talk about with a new day or anything like that? I think the biggest part is just keeping an open mind about a variety of things. I think so often, um, I think as parents, sometimes we can get offended because people are trying to guide us in a different direction or we're looking at helping our kids maneuver something, you know, whether it's um, their identity or their thoughts about other people or their education. And I think we just have to keep an open mind. And um, I think we also have to remember that we shouldn't parent out of fear. And I see a lot of parents do that because they're afraid of their kid ending up like blank. I don't want them to have a life like mine. or I don't want them to be the kid that I imagine them to maybe be. And I think we have to remember that we need to parent the kid we have in front of us rather than the kid we're afraid of having. And I, I really try to emphasize it a lot with a lot of parents because I see a lot of families being tortured by a lot of that stuff. And it really creates more tension and toxic interactions. So, you know, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind and, you know, to again, reach out for help if whether it's from a psychologist or a parent coach and my team, we offer um, parent coaching for people around the world. And sometimes there's some people that we meet with that is just once or twice and others for, there's a couple people I've been meeting with for months, once a month, just checking in as their kid gets older and meets a new developmental stage. So it's okay to reach out for, for help. It's a sign of strength, not weakness. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. Dr. Lockhart, thank you for being with us today. You've been a wealth of information and we really are so appreciative of the work that you're doing out in the world and all of the help that you've given one in five over the last, I don't even know how long. I don't either. (laughs) In the sometime during the century. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. And we will, we will, I'm sure continue to work with you. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we're changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time when we dive into the power of mindfulness. We'll talk with Meriden McGraw, who is a mindfulness facilitator, mental well-being and resiliency coach, and mental health advocate. Meriden will share some of the research behind mindfulness, where to start if you want to begin a mindfulness practice, and how mindfulness can help us as we navigate COVID and the racial injustices happening in the U.S. See you then!